Hello everyone, I'm Mark, the chief writer here at Maltopia, and I just wanted to remind you the sleep-wake cycle is but one of a series of interconnected horror podcasts within the wide and weird world of Maltopia. For Easter eggs, crossover events, and additional lore, please check out our other series, The Shepherd of Wolves, Red Mother, Grimland, and The Damnation Machine. And be sure to check out our free content on our Patreon page for additional lore and stories. For even more Maltopia content, consider becoming a patron. Starting for as little as $2 a month, benefits range from additional art, update videos, early episode access, our mini-podcast series, October's Children, both written and full audio pieces, such as The Lost Library, Tales of Maltopia, and The Weird Book. You can also gain access to our found footage show, The Weird Tape Series, and even our Patreon-exclusive, fully-produced audio series, Devil's Clay. So, with all that said, I will leave you to the darkness. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trend says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Rusty Quill presents. Hey, Meltopians. We wanted to take a moment to give you a huge thank you for helping make our new series, The Sleep-Wake Cycle, such a hit. We've thrown absolutely everything we have into this one, both creatively and from a production and marketing standpoint, hoping to give you something as unique as it is intriguing, while still showcasing our signature Meltopian style. Thanks to the overwhelming support we've received, we will definitely be continuing the series for at least another season or two. Yet, due to work and family obligations, we'll be moving to one episode a week starting next week for the remainder of season one. The writing and production schedule has been exhausting, but we were committed to establishing a firm foundation for the series early on. Having done that, I can now set my sights on writing season two of the Red Mother series while finishing off season one of the Sleep-Wake Cycle. The good news, however, is that Season 1 will be continuing for a bit longer than the initial 25 episodes we first anticipated. This new Thursday release schedule will also allow us to provide our growing Patreon community with the attention they so deserve. Their support has gone a long way toward making the sleep-wake cycle a reality, and we have some wonderful content in store for them, including an exclusive monthly podcast miniseries that explores the world of Maltopia in exciting new ways. For our podcast miniseries, as well as written stories, early access to artwork in our public podcast episodes, live Discord events, and more, you can join our community at patreon.com slash Maltopia, or click the link in the description below. Once again, thank you so much for all your love and support. We really appreciate it, and we hope to see you over on our Patreon and Discord. Take care, and as always, enjoy the episode.
I don't think I'd ever been that scared before. The thought that I'd have to face off with Romy. Try to, uh, subdue her. The force that came out of that cave was like nothing I'd felt either. Granted, it was nighttime and I wasn't at full power, but I had a feeling that even if the sun had been right on top of me, it wouldn't have helped. I could barely shield myself, let alone Romy. Whatever lived in that cave was the most concentrated evil I'd ever come across. We also had to hope against hope that whatever it was hadn't alerted anyone to us. That it was likely a fossil of some prehistoric dream that Romy's power had granted animation and personality. But, whatever the cause, there was no going back. Things might have been finally adding up, but the result looked like it could be more than we could handle. On our best day. All I knew at that point was that we needed to get to the other side of that cave and into Leland as fast as we could. Romy still looked dazed, her eyes glass. She was still putting the pieces together. The further we pushed into that place, the worse it got. Statues got bigger and weirder, the darkness seemed to thicken, and the feeling that something was watching us was palpable. Though on that last count, my power hadn't bumped into anything. The place reminded me of my time in the great darkness, where nothing seemed certain or solid, and everything was empty. Everywhere I went held the remains of something bizarre, as if I just stumbled upon a terrible event moments after it concluded. I'd walk into a house where the echoes of children playing still bounced around the rooms, with signs of their play, toys made from bloody bones strewn everywhere, but no children. I wandered into a huge city once, one whose name I could never recall. It had been torn apart by something massive, and given all the smoke and fire and the fading sounds of something titanic caterwauling in the distance, the carnage was very recent. The skyscrapers had been broken apart and restacked like blocks, made into crude shapes and designs. I distinctly remembered several high-rise buildings being fashioned together into the shape of a towering stick figure. One tower formed the body, while the other had been inserted horizontally across its center to imply arms on each side, and another, smaller building had been leaned next to the base to convey legs. A giant flaming clock tower had been fashioned into the thing's head. Another part of the city had entire blocks of houses torn up from the ground and piled into the shape of a dog. The cavern was giving off the same vibe, like we'd just arrived on the heels of something massive and terrible. Whatever power haunted that place, it wasn't just contained to matter, but it seemed to affect time as well. Or at least our sense of time. There were moments when it felt we'd been walking for days, followed by the sense we'd been traveling for less than a few minutes. I couldn't help recalling the old black and white films of soldiers plodding into the wake of an atomic bomb. No idea the radiation was slowly killing them. The cavern slowly narrowed and sank into the darkest water. Off to one side of the last bit of dry earth stood a set of huge sweeping stone stairs that spiraled up and out of sight. I was never so relieved to see stairs. We might have moved a little too fast to where they led, though, but the thought of staying in that cave another moment had us both hustling. We popped up inside a massive earthen cellar, its corners heaped with boxes and antiques. A few dirty bulbs hung down from the high ceiling, 
swinging slightly from their long, bare wires. One of them glowed, barely illuminating the full extent of the room. Most importantly, the foulness from below hadn't followed us up. An old, round, oaken door led up to the ground floor of a severely dilapidated mansion. The tumble-down thing was dimly lit by several tarnished candelabras, revealing long, tattered curtains billowing atop broken windows like weathered flags on a forgotten battlefield. Moldering timber sloughed and bowed from the worm-eaten walls, and the ceiling bulged with massive tumors of water-swollen wood and plaster. Still, there was a kind of dismal beauty to the place its ruined opulence recalling vintage pleasures of a bygone age. Romy slowly turned in circles, admiring the place. It's all like some beautiful nightmare. She seemed to be talking to herself. I knew the scene was having its way with her condition, just like it was having its way with mine. Situations like this often triggered my compulsions, the response to my own paranoia. I knew... I knew something terrible would happen to Romy if I didn't head to the second floor and touch the first doorknob I saw. I might have been able to duck the ritual if I were able to change into one of my gray suits, but we'd come here in disguise, covered in black hoods and cloaks. To deny the ritual was to invite crippling anxiety. I had no choice. I, um, I have to check something out. Just, uh, stay here and keep a lookout. It was a stupid lie, but I couldn't bear to tell the truth. What the hell are you talking about? Check what? Even partially lost to her own condition, the stupidity of my excuse occurred to her. I pretended I didn't hear and crept up the sagging staircase that corkscrewed upward. Along the way, I noticed huge amounts of dust caking the corners of the stairs and spread out all over the second floor. Worse still were the delicately crooked footprints impressing the widespread crime. Could the old woman Romy saw be here? Was this some kind of hotel of horrors? A place for old monsters to cool their heels while they waited to cross the lake? I needed to tap a doorknob and beat feet. My disorder might have brought us more trouble we couldn't afford. The second floor was a match for the first, just a little thinner and more rambling, darker. It was the way the shadows drowned out the far end of the hall that raised my hackles. How they seemed to run down the distant walls like tar. My next step into the hallway put me in range of a low groaning. A coarse and terrible breathing. As if the boogeyman were sleeping it off in a room down the hall. But I'd come this far, and the nearest doorknob was only a few feet away. Sweat beaded my brow as I tried to resist my compulsion, and my facial tics jumped on the bandwagon. If we got ourselves made, if I got us made, this whole plan could go up in smoke, to say nothing of what would happen to us. By the time my left hand touched the knob, the right was reaching for my eye. A cold, dusty wind blew my cloak out in front of me as I made my way down the stairs, and the sound of something heavy stirred from behind, the floorboards grumbling. I have already told you, Darkling. I fear nothing, and so do not need for your protection. 
If you disturb my dreams again, I will turn your houses to dust and watch them dance upon the breeze. Do you understand me? The voice was shrill and cold, a funeral of icy notes. I was back downstairs and standing next to Romy. We were frozen to the spot. She knew as well as I did that our plan depended on remaining undiscovered. If we were found out, we'd likely be chased away before we ever spoke to the Crickmires. When the thing received no answer, we heard something draw closer from above. Something big. Bits of plaster fell from the ceiling, outlining the footsteps of the thing, and the curtains billowed sideways as the house filled with dusty wind. We slowly retreated to the back of the room, under the stairs to the second floor. It was right above us, standing at the top of the stairs, throwing a monstrous shadow against the far wall. It seemed divided between the human and the demonic, maybe even the draconic. Bah! Keep your silence, or my next words will be the last sounds you ever hear. The wind died as the footsteps vanished slowly away, small motes of dust still swirling in the dim light. The trip through the cave and then the mansion took a toll on me. The visions of the past, the beauty of ruined places, and then the monster in the dark. Dreams wished they were of such stuff. Naturally, the overstimulation was moving me decisively into delusion and paranoia, and the pills I'd popped earlier were doing a poor job of stabilizing my thoughts. It was Isaiah who managed to ground me through it all. Though it seemed I was immune to his reality-stabilizing ability, his capacity to invoke banality, there was something about it, or him, I wasn't sure which, that afforded me some additional strength. But, at the moment, nothing was doing a good job of keeping me out of the clouds. Once we escaped the mansion, we were greeted by your run-of-the-mill fishing village. Leland was thoroughly unspectacular a stark contrast to the glittering darkness of Nighthead. Its only redeeming feature wasn't in view, located a small walk westward along the shoreline, the Lake Horse and Rider. It was a fairly large obscurum, a monstrous kelpie with a darksome woman astride its back, the Marrow. She was ghastly, though approximately humanoid, save for her spiraling tentacled legs and hair, and a beguiling fanged smile. The whole concoction, from kelpie to marrow, was comprised of all sorts of muscle shells. Warty back, snuff box, and round pigtoe, to name a few. The thing was positioned out in the shallows, where it somehow survived being torn to shred by the lake storms the area was known for. But beyond that, Leland was just a hodgepodge of squat cottages, crumbling break walls, and run-down marinas. It started raining, of course, and the streets grew slick and glistening. We quickly ditched our cloaks and steepled hoods, revealing the more rugged attire beneath. We were confident the nighthead look wasn't all the rage in Leland, though the place wasn't absent a nightlife. The staple, if not stereotypical, pub scene was fully present. An occasional drunken fisherman stumbled by, and there were more than a few tavern patios, thick with the hardy, if stooped, shapes of men and women. 
Past the center of town, we sighted a collection of lanterns burning dim and orange down by the water. Moving closer, we made out a long black boat tied to a skeletal dock, about a dozen or so men moving crates onto it from the back of several pickup trucks. Must be the old lady's ride to Marrow's. I almost chuckled at my brother's shorthand for the terrifying thing that had almost killed me. What do you make of the crates? Well, if she's come to pledge herself to the Eel King, they're probably gifts. Offerings of some sort. Might be why she's still here, waiting for her stuff to catch up. Huh. Even demons lose their luggage. Good to know. <laughs> Clever. According to the maps and the discovery materials, there's another marina about a mile west of here, near the big obscurum. We just gotta be careful. Last thing we need is to bump into Landsmore. He could make us in a second. We stayed to the lakeside of the massive break wall that ran the length of the city. It wasn't long before Leland was mostly behind us, the huge kelpie rising out of choppy waters, its rider staring a hole into the shoreline. Despite its patchwork construction, it was surprisingly solid. The shells blended enough to give the appearance of a rough, almost scaly exterior. The eyes of both horse and rider were thoroughly undiminished for their exposure to frequent storms. Their fierceness belied their composition, looking more like the real things than any collection of shells had a right to. They seemed to follow us as we walked past them to the marina. The marina itself was small and rickety, and most of the boats seemed old to the point of disuse, which of course was what we were looking for, something that could go missing without notice. We took our time selecting the right one, as it needed to be functional along with derelict. There was an old rowboat that hit all the right notes. It seemed sturdy enough, and had small plants growing up from its corners, where enough dirt had accrued to allow them to take root. The thing probably hadn't been used in years, and the motor was certainly non-functional. After we found some oars, Isaiah produced a sterling switchblade and snapped out the gleaming blade. Severing the thick rope that secured it, we pushed the boat out into the lake, under cover of dark and rain. The water was a little rough from the weather, but nothing that made the going tough. All I could think of were the sounds from Dr. Bowley's recording. Unearthly sounds that preceded the crushing of Edward Cuddy's entire house. We'd hoped the phenomenon was a directed attack of some kind, as Team 27 had likely overstayed its welcome. Reasoning that if no one knew we were coming, we would be spared whatever had been unleashed on Bowley and his men. It wasn't an unreasonable assumption, but it was hardly reassuring. At a point where nothing was visible anywhere around us, when the natural darkness was as deep as it could get, we felt a slight rumble, almost like a tremor, somewhere beneath the water. The trembling became audible, the softest thunder growling beneath the water, and my blood ran cold. I had a thing about being in the water while something big was in there with me. Maybe it was all the dreams I'd encountered on the topic, as I wasn't the only one with the phobia. Although that particular fear seemed more like common sense than a phobia. Something gigantic breached some distance away. 
sounding like a building dropping in the water. The distance and the fact that we were getting hit by the spray hinted at just how gigantic it was. I lit my eyes just long enough to see the resulting wave capsize us. I tumbled into the freezing water, scrabbling for a handhold on the boat. Isaiah popped up alongside me, placing a rope tied to the front of the boat into my hand as we fought the turbulent waves. Hold on. The next big wave blasted us as we clung to the rope, simultaneously giving us a buoy and allowing us to stay together. After a few minutes of gasping and treading and shivering, the wave subsided and the water calmed. As we got our bearings, Isaiah checked the straps of his backpack, where he'd stuck his briefcase. Before we could consider our options, a massive undertow pulled us beneath the surface, and through the depths we spied the sheer immensity of the thing passing below us. As we scrambled to the surface and gulped lungfuls of air, all I could think of was how this whole mission had been pitched to us. A town with some locals who might have been killing workmen to keep the place isolated. This required a goddamned army, not a strange twins armed with party tricks. We were going to buy it in the worst way imaginable. Swallowed alive by something only vaguely whale-like in shape, and twice the size. And all we could do was float there, shivering, waiting. The Sleep-Wake Cycle is a Maltopia production. Today's episode was written by Mark Anzalone and performed by Kelly Bear and Mark Anzalone. The episode was edited by Walker Kornfeld. Sound production and editing was performed by Stephen Anzalone, and the Sleep-Wake Cycle theme song was written and performed by Sean Zeller. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Maltopia. That's M-A-E-L-T-O-P-I-A. And if you'd like to know more about the world of the sleep-wake cycle and contribute to its nightmarish expansion, visit us at www.patreon.com forward slash Meltopia, where you can gain access to all sorts of art, mythology, stories, and more. For more information about the sleep-wake cycle and the larger world of Meltopia, head over to Meltopia.com. Worried you'll need to babysit your robot vacuum? Think again. Meet Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum with AI-powered navigation to recognize and avoid over 100 objects. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards. And Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.